Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're studying the four stages of enlightenment and the ten fetters. This is going to help you to understand the individual pollutions that are in the mind and what needs to be eradicated in order to get to enlightenment. The Buddha discovered ten individual pollutions. They're referred to as the ten fetters often referred to as taints or pollutions or defilements of the mind. This is what's hindering the mind from being able to experience the peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. So understanding what these are, the symptoms of them, and how to eliminate them will ultimately help you to move this mind closer and closer to enlightenment to experience the brightness and radiance and joy of the enlightened mind. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today and invite you to join and learn the four stages of enlightenment in the 10 fetters. I'm gonna be using some visual aids to help me discuss the four stages of enlightenment in the 10 fetters in today's class. And as we go, you're always welcome to ask any and all questions that you like by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. By being able to ask questions, you can then get clarification on anything that you're interested in learning about as part of your journey to enlightenment. So, As part of the beginning of this group learning program, what I've been doing is I've been introducing you to the path to enlightenment over a series of classes. We first started with the very first class of just introducing you to the group learning program to begin with. Then we did three classes on the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment. This is how you develop your life practice to be able to actually make your way to enlightenment by learning, reflecting, and practicing the Eightfold Path. That's what's gonna actually move your mind to enlightenment. We started talking just briefly about the jhanas last week and kind of introducing you to these preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to getting to the first stage of enlightenment. And this is as a result of putting together the Eightfold Path and the meditative absorption and absorbing a certain amount of the teachings in the mind. This is going to actually help the mind then experience those preliminary phases that the mind goes through called the jhanas. Well, once the mind is in those jhanas and experiencing those particular qualities of mind, that's the time where it's then important to really be focusing on the 10 fetters. And that's what we're going to be discussing today and talking about the four stages of enlightenment as you're eliminating these fetters from the mind. In other courses and retreats, I go through these fetters in a lot of detail. I'll spend even like an hour and a half or so just talking about one specific fetter. Today is more of an introduction to these fetters and helping you to understand what they are, some of the symptoms that you're going to see, and then how to actually eliminate them. But understand that when a student first starts, they're usually starting off just trying to get their arms around the full path, which includes a meditation practice. So this class here that I'm sharing with you, it's not that you're going to 
go out and actually start eradicating these from the mind right now today but it's more of an introduction so you know where the path to enlightenment is headed because everything on the path to enlightenment in one way or another is working to eliminate these fetters from the mind even things like right speech and right action and right livelihood the buddha is sharing with you guidance in the eightfold path that's ultimately connecting over to these fetters and helping you to eliminate the pollution of the mind and that's the reason why the mind moves into those preliminary phases called the jhanas is starting to reduce some of the pollution that's in the mind so as you're first starting you're usually just looking at the eightfold path the five precepts developing your meditation practice and some other foundational teachings which is all part of this group learning program when we start next week from the very beginning which is the real start where we're starting from chapter one and we'll go chapter by chapter in the book from there so here this is more of kind of giving you a heads up of what the path to enlightenment entails and helping you connect that to the eightfold path and seeing how eliminating the fetters is actually being accomplished through the eightfold path and introducing you to these fetters and then realizing that later in your journey to enlightenment as you're putting together the foundational teachings and starting to experience the jhanas that's when you'll focus more closely on these 10 fetters but for now i'd like to just introduce you to them and start to have some discussion around them so you know what they are because you'll start noticing as I'm sharing the teachings with you about the fetters, you'll start hearing certain similarities to things that you've experienced in life. So when I'm describing things like personal existence view, the very first fetter, you'll be able to relate that to your direct experience in life and see how, oh yeah, I do have that fetter or central desire or ill will. Oh yeah, I do have that pollution in the mind. And you can then start being aware of the symptoms and then start to actually apply the antidotes or the solutions to eliminate them from the mind. And as always, as I mentioned, as you have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. I'll see those and then be able to answer any questions that you have. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So the first fetter to start to understand is personal existence view. This is part of the lower fetters. The 10 fetters are organized in the lower fetters and the higher fetters. We refer to it as a fetter because this word fetter represents a shackle and a chain and a ball. This is the way that they kept prisoners in a certain area during ancient times, essentially. So a fetter is gonna keep a prisoner trapped in this kind of cage, so to speak, even though there's just a shackle and a chain and a ball, it's gonna hinder them from being able to run around and do a lot of things. So it's keeping the prisoner trapped. So these 10 fetters or 10 pollutions or taints or defilements are keeping the mind trapped in this unenlightened state where it's experiencing things like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings and others, even things like stress and anxiety. This is all being experienced due to these 10 fetters. And when you understand what they are, you can understand what they are, the symptoms that you're experiencing because of these fetters, then you can understand how to implement the solutions to actually resolve them and eliminate them out of the mind. While I'm gonna be sharing with you that exact 
type of thing, what the better is, the symptoms, and how to actually go in and proactively work to eliminate these fetters, it's important to understand that the Eightfold Path is there for a reason. The section of the Eightfold Path that we talked about last week with mental discipline, where you're noticing with mindfulness any unwholesome qualities that are arising, and then you're applying right effort to cut that off and let it go. This is always there. That's like the core foundational teaching of the Buddha, the Eightfold Path. Now what you're going to be learning is what are some of those unwholesome qualities that can arise that you can be aware of with your mindfulness and then cut it off and let it go. So that's always what you should be doing whenever there's discontentedness arising. But then I'm also going to be introducing you to things that you can be doing to proactively eliminate some of these fetters as well. Because the Eightfold Path of Right Mindfulness and Right Effort, that's there in the moment. That when the craving has been triggered and there's discontentedness starting to arise as a bodily sensation or the feeling or the condition of the mind, as you're noticing those things, you can cut that off and let it go in the moment. But there's also proactive things that you can be doing to eliminate these fetters, and you'll see that as we go in today's class. So this first fetter of personal existence view, we've talked about this already in this program, and we'll be talking about it at other times as well. It takes a a little bit of time for an individual to start to understand what this fetter is because we've spent so much time accumulating this personal existence view in our life. What this is, is this is the pollution or the taint or the defilement in the mind that the mind falsely believes that this body or this mind is who you are as a person. The mind is clinging to a self-image or a self-identity, wanting to be perceived in the world a certain way. And now because it's clinging to this self-image of wanting to be seen in the world a certain way and the self-identity being uh, perceived in the world a certain way based on one's self-identity, now when you have agreeable contact related to the self-image or the self-identity, you'll experience conditioned pleasant feelings. But when you have disagreeable contact, you will then experience the painful feelings. And this is causing the mind to go up and down and up and down. So let me give you some examples. If you spilled chocolate ice cream or pizza sauce on your clothing and you're out at a public space, you might get embarrassed because the mind is clinging to this self-image, thinking that this is who you are. And now the mind wants to be perceived in the world a certain way. But when you have spaghetti sauce or chocolate ice cream on your clothing, you might feel embarrassed because you're not being perceived the way that you want to be perceived. Or if somebody compliments you in a very positive way about your appearance, maybe your hair, your skin color, your makeup, your jewelry, your clothing, your mind may get these conditioned pleasant feelings based on this complimentary language, this agreeable contact that the ears are hearing from this individual. Now, because of impermanence, it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading and disparaging about this self-image. So if the mind is clinging to the self-image and it's getting these conditioned pleasant feelings when somebody says something agreeable to you, then it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading and disparaging about the self-image. And now the mind's going to be experiencing those painful feelings because we can't control what other people are doing in the world. That's not what we're able to do. All we can do is train our 
our own mind and control our own mind so it doesn't get shaken up in any particular situation. But as long as it's clinging to this personal existence view, thinking that this is who you are as a person, then when somebody says something agreeable or disagreeable about your self-image, you will experience conditioned pleasant feelings or painful feelings. And then the same thing is occurring with the self-identity. There's certain identity that the mind is holding on to, like I am American, or I am Chinese, or I am Singaporean, or I am Malaysian, or I am Russian, I am Mexican, I am Brazilian. Any kind of culture, ethnicity, sexual orientation, your job or occupation, the mind can take on these things as an identity. Even I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend, I am a husband, I am a wife. And now when you experience change as it relates to this identity that the mind is clinging to and thinking that this is who you are, when you experience change due to impermanence, you can feel lost in the world. You can feel like, gosh, I was a police officer for 40 years and now I'm retired. I feel like a part of me is missing. A part of me is gone because the mind has identified with this role of being a police officer as who you are. Or if you got injured on the job after five or 10 years and you can't do that job anymore, or you got fired from a certain job or anything like this, or say you were in a relationship as a husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, when you guys separated, you might've felt very lost because you weren't identifying with, I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend or I am a husband or I am a wife. And you might've tried to hurry up and get back into another relationship so that you can assume that role again and that identity. So this self-image and self-identity that the mind is holding on to, it's plaguing the mind. It's causing all kinds of difficulties. If you look in the mirror and you see a gray hair or a freckle or a mole or a wrinkle or some other thing about the physical body that you don't particularly like, maybe you have some extra fat around the stomach or the hips or the thighs or something like this. As we age, the body is going to change. But if we're clinging to this body, thinking that this is who we are, wanting the body to be perceived a certain way in the world or wanting to be perceived a certain way in the world and clinging to an identity, then when all this permanence is happening with the physical body and with the various roles and things that we experience in the world, the mind will be shaken up due to its personal existence view. So this is a bit about this fetter and some of the symptoms that you're going to experience. There's multiple ways that you can actually work to proactively eliminate the personal existence view. But remember, there's that eightfold path, as I mentioned, that that's there to help you work to eliminate all these fetters. Now, whenever you see discontentedness arising related to personal existence view, you can just cut it off and let it go. Of course, you need to train your mind to be able to do that. It's not going to be as simple as just cut it off and let it go. You got to build up your breathing mindfulness meditation and your generosity to train the mind to be able to let things go. But wherever you see any discontentedness whatsoever, no matter what it's related to, you would like to cut it off and let it go. But there'll be this discontentedness arising due to personal existence view because that's in your mind and you would like to shave it back and shave it back and shave it back and shave it back. It's like a wild bush or a weed. The more you shave it back, eventually you can get to the root and you can uproot it out of the mind and get rid of it. 
but you need to constantly shave it back and shave it back and shave it back and shave it back and shave it back. And then your breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is there to help you build the qualities of mind that you need in order to be able to shave it back and uproot it out of the mind. Then some of the proactive things that you can be doing, which we're gonna be exploring in chapter 16 when we get to that, because we're gonna be talking about personal existence view in detail. But just to give you kind of a little bit of a preview, there's things like wearing simple clothing. If you have this desire to be perceived a certain way in the world, but if you simplify the way that you appear, like not wearing jewelry or makeup or things like this, or just wearing very simple, basic clothing, or maybe just taking your clothing and stacking it up and then just picking off the top and choosing to wear whatever's on the top of your pile, so to speak. This can be one of the ways that you can train the mind to not make a choice because typically what the mind's going to want to do is it's going to stand in front of your closet perhaps you're going to be thinking about who am i going to see today what am i going to do how do i want to look who do i want to impress what's the best clothes that i can wear to impress this person and now you're going to go hunting through your clothing in order to look for that particular thing and this is the mind's personal existence view trying to be perceived in the world a certain way so if you just stack up your clothes and pick off the top you're not giving the mind the opportunity to be able to do that so those are some of the things you can do even shaving your hair not everybody needs to shave their hair to get to enlightenment but this is one of the reasons why people shave their hair in buddhist teachings is because they're trying to let go of the mind's desire to be perceived in a certain way due to the self-image so these are things and there's others as well that we're going to explore as part of chapter 16. then there's the second fetter of doubt what doubt is, is where you have doubt about the teachings and their ability of them to be able to attain enlightenment. An individual is lacking confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community that you're part of, your teacher, or your own ability to actually attain enlightenment. This is a common thing that people come to the path to enlightenment with is doubt. You know, doubting whether or not these teachings will truly lead to enlightenment or not. And the way that you eliminate doubt is you don't eliminate it through blind belief or faith. That's not the way that an individual would eliminate doubt. Because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. You're just believing something. The way that you eliminate doubt is through investigating the teachings of the Buddha. If you investigate the teachings of the Buddha, if you examine them to be able to learn them, then you start reflecting on them to independently verify them. And then you start practicing them in order to transform your mind and uproot some of these pollutions out of the mind. And you start noticing the mind's becoming more peaceful and joyful. You know in situations where you once got frustrated or irritated or angry and your mind's no longer doing that anymore, you will eventually get to a point where you've investigated the teachings deeply enough and you've seen enough progress in your path to enlightenment and developing your life practice that you'll get to a point where you have no doubt that these teachings are indeed leading to your enlightenment. You're not enlightened yet at this point, but you have no doubt that your development on this path is leading you exactly where the Buddha said, because you can see that the mind's becoming more and more peaceful. You'll get to the point where you have full confidence in the Buddha. You'll know that this individual lived because you'll see things that he talked about during his lifetime in his teachings, and he's describing to you the exact experiences that you're having now, 2,500 years later. And you'll 
you'll have no doubt that he was indeed enlightened and he was a Buddha because he wouldn't have been able to explain things 2,500 years ago that you're experiencing today within your own mind. You'll get to the point where you have confidence in the teachings. You have no doubt that his teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind. You'll have no doubt in the community. You'll have confidence among the individual practitioners that are as part of this community, whether it's our online community or here in Chiang Mai, we're all one big community. And you'll learn and absorb understanding of the teachings from interacting with other people. If you see people asking questions, for example, in a class and you see how polite and kind and friendly and respectful they are, perhaps you're like, hmm, I really like how that person asked that question. I think I will start interacting in the world that way too. I'll kind of adopt some of that in my practice and develop that in my practice. This is how an individual learns from within a community. They can learn from not only the teacher, but they can learn from other members of the community just through observation and kind of using others as maybe like a role model for how to develop your practice. Then if you've experienced a significant amount of progress and you see that your mind is improving and condition and your life is improving, your relationships both personally and professionally are starting to improve, you'll have no doubt in your teacher, the person who's been guiding you to actually learn through the various resources and various classes, you'll get to the point where you have full confidence in that individual and your own ability to attain enlightenment because you will have been doing the work and you will have seen the progress in the condition of the mind and in your life that you'll get to a point where you'll have not gotten to enlightenment yet, but you'll have seen enough progress that you know that you're on the right path. And yes, you can do this because I would suggest that the vast majority of us come to the path to enlightenment with doubt. Of course we have doubt, right? Because we don't know what the Buddhist teachings are. Usually when we come to the path to enlightenment, we don't even know what a Buddha is, let alone what his teachings are. So of course we're gonna have a certain amount of doubt. But what you can do with this doubt is rather than allowing it to hinder your mind and be a pollution that maybe ultimately has you turn away from the path to enlightenment, instead you can harness it. You can create an inquisitive mind where the mind is now inquisitive to try to understand these teachings through investigation and examination. You can harness it in a positive way and say, you know what? Absolutely, I have doubt. I don't at this point, but you know, you may, right? Absolutely, you have doubt perhaps at this point. 100% you have doubt. And you know what? I'm going to investigate the teachings and examine them and try to discover the truth for myself. Do these teachings indeed lead to enlightenment? And that's how you harness it to create an inquisitive mind, never believing anything about the teachings, but learning, reflecting to independently verify, and then practicing in order to transform the mind. That's how you get rid of your doubt. Then the third one is called wrong behavior in observances. What this one is about is if you remember back two weeks ago when I taught the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path, where we talked about right speech, right action, and right livelihood, those teachings were there to help you understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. The Buddha is showing you how your speech, your actions, and your livelihood, depending on the choices you make there, can cause harm in the world, and therefore this harm can come back to you. 
by you making unwise decisions with a lack of wisdom of the natural law of gamma, then by making those unwise decisions, you will experience unwholesome results in the world. By having wisdom and making wise decisions, you'll experience wholesome results. So by the time somebody's eliminated the wrong behavior part of this fetter, they will be practicing the Eightfold Path to that particular level that's described in right speech, right action, and right livelihood in terms of those aspects of right speech where we're not lying, we're not having slander, harsh speech, or frivolous speech. With right action, we're living compassionately for the welfare of other living beings, working to not kill, we are not stealing, we're not having sexual misconduct, and then we've purified our livelihood in terms of those five right livelihoods, in terms of not selling weapons, about not selling living beings, meat, substances that cause heedlessness and poisons. And then those other aspects of our livelihood about scheming, flattery, belittling, hinting, and then pursuing gain with gain. This is like a first level of moral conduct that you're working to improve. And the reason why you're interested in improving that is because by you making wise decisions, then there's less and less harm coming back to you. There's less and less unwholesome results. It will be very difficult to get to a peaceful and joyful mind if you're speaking harsh and aggressive and hostile to people because people are just going to keep speaking harsh and hostile and aggressive with you. How could you ever get to peacefulness if you've got people around you that are hostile and bitter? Because you're hostile and bitter, you're putting that out and now people around you are hostile and bitter. So if you're going to get to this peaceful and joyful mental state, you're going to have to transform your mind to this level of moral conduct to eliminate wrong behaviors, which is part of that first layer of moral conduct. And then it goes deeper than that with things like the five factors of well-spoken speech and other things. So by the time somebody's eliminated a wrong behavior, they've purified their moral conduct to the level of what you see in the Eightfold Path. The wrong observances, this is where an individual might believe that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is going to somehow provide improvement to the condition of their life. There's oftentimes things, even in Buddhist temples and Buddhist centers, where people are doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. The Buddha never taught any of those things. Even if people are assigning the name Buddhism or the Buddha to what they're doing, maybe even if they're dressing in robes or cutting their hair and they're looking very much like a Buddhist monk, if they're doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, this isn't what the Buddha actually taught. Because if you understand the number one problem in the mind, which is this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, which is actually one of the fetters, it's the 10th fetter, and you learn more and more about this ignorance or unknowing of true reality as you progress on the path, that the mind is unaware of what it's unaware of. For example, the mind was unaware before you got onto this path that you're actually causing your own anger, that you're causing your own sadness or frustration or irritation or other feelings like this, all that discontentedness. The mind has this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, confusion, misunderstanding. Some people refer to it as delusion. We translate it as ignorance, but today that word ignorance has a bit of a derogatory tone to it. And a Buddha and an enlightened being doesn't talk in derogatory ways to people. So this is why I like the phrase, the unknowing of true reality. But I still use that word ignorance because a lot of other people use it. So if you end up 
coming across somebody else's teachings, you'll understand what this is plugging into. But you should think about it as misunderstanding, confusion, unknowing of true reality. The mind just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. That's the number one problem in the unenlightened mind. And the way that you transform that is through wisdom. By you acquiring wisdom of things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, meditation training, the natural law of gamma, all of these different things, you're now learning the teachings, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, and you're practicing them. And it's that wisdom that is transforming the mind and helping you to make wiser and wiser decisions that then leads to more and more wholesome outcomes in your life. As long as there's that lack of wisdom, there'll be unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results in your life. So there's no rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship that is going to produce wisdom in your mind. So that's why the Buddha never taught any rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. He's documented in his teachings as talking about some of the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that was going on during his lifetime. And he would talk about it and explain how he doesn't do those things. And he would even talk about the reasons why. He only ever taught the things that lead to enlightenment. And as long as the mind believes that you can do rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and that's going to somehow improve your life, you're still having a certain pollution, a still delusion or confusion or misunderstanding. So if an ordained practitioner sprinkles some water on you, okay, there's just some water hitting on you. This isn't going to purify you. This isn't going to do anything miraculous or mystical or magical for you. If somebody ties a string on your wrist, this isn't going to do anything miraculous for you. If you're praying, for example, and asking a supreme being for things and asking this being to change things in your life or to give you things in your life, this isn't going to produce change in your life. Everything that you've ever experienced in life has been a result of your decisions. This is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, and action and result. So as long as the mind is having wrong observances, it falsely believes in the mind that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is going to provide some kind of benefit. Now, if you ended up going to any place that has rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, it's not like, you know, the the Wizard of Oz where if the water sprinkles on you, you're going to melt like the Wicked Witch of the West, so to speak, right? Like there's people who might go to church or might go to a synagogue or might go to a mosque and be with family. And this is like a family event. And maybe everyone else is doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. But for you, maybe even if you did those things, at least your mind knows that these things aren't going to lead to an improved condition of your mind, that it's not going to miraculously give you wisdom that is going to transform the mind and lead you to being able to experience improved decision-making just by doing a right ritual ceremony or worship. So it's about what the mind understands and what you practice. For me, I don't do any kind of rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship because I know that these things aren't going to lead to improvement to the condition of the mind. Everything that I do is based on improving the condition of the mind and ensuring that the mind is practicing the teachings and that there's no right ritual ceremony or worship that's going to allow you to cultivate wisdom. So that's why the Buddha has this wrong behavior and observances here as the third fetter. The fourth fetter is called central desire. This is how the mind has this longing and yearning through the six sense bases, wanting agreeable contact through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, 
the body and the mind itself. That the mind is longing, yearning through these sense bases, wanting agreeable contact permanently. And if it gets what it wants, then it gets conditioned pleasant feelings. But if it doesn't get what it wants, it gets these conditioned painful feelings. Because of craving in the mind, that longing, that yearning, that desire, that attachment, there are certain things that the mind sees as agreeable and certain things that it sees as disagreeable. And when it has agreeable contact through the six sense bases, it will get those conditioned pleasant feelings. But when it experiences disagreeable contact due to its craving, it will experience painful feelings. So now, if the mind sees something through the eyes that it agrees with, it gets those pleasant feelings. So if you're walking down the street and you see a child holding its parent's hand, you might think, oh, that's so beautiful. Look at that child holding the mom's hand. This is so wonderful, right? And you might get these conditioned pleasant feelings as a result. But then when you turn the corner, maybe you see a parent slap their child across their face. And we're not talking about what's wise or unwise here. We're just talking about what's causing the mind to be discontent and experience that discontentedness. Well, now the mind perhaps has seen something that's disagreeable to it. And now you might get angry or frustrated or irritated. And you can't control what other people do. You can only control your own mind. So if the mind is craving for agreeable forms, then only when you see things through the eyes, some form that is agreeable to you, will you experience conditioned pleasant feelings. But you're not going to permanently see things that are agreeable because of the craving in the mind. So then when you see something that's disagreeable, you'll experience these painful feelings. And then the same thing is happening with the ears, certain sounds that are agreeable or disagreeable. If you're at a stoplight and somebody pulls up with some music and you're like, yeah, that's my jam. Yeah, great. That's my jam. Oh, that's such great music, right? But then you go to the next stoplight and somebody pulls up next to you with some music that you don't like. And now you get angry and frustrated and irritable. Well, this is because of central desire. It's got a craving in the mind of something that it finds agreeable and it gets pleasant feelings. And then it has something that's disagreeable and it then gets these painful feelings as a result. Same thing is happening with the odors of the nose, the flavors on the tongue, the physical objects touching the body, and then the mental objects. What a mental object would be in this example is that if you're in the present moment and you're thinking about things in the past that were either pleasurable or painful, you can experience pleasure and pain in the present moment because the mind is now thinking about things in the past that occurred. And now because the mind is clinging to these experiences in the past, you can be experiencing in the present moment discontent feelings. And then the same thing for the future, that the mind can be having certain pleasant thoughts or certain painful thoughts about things that could potentially happen in the future. And now in the present moment, you're going to experience these either conditioned pleasant feelings or painful feelings. So let's just say that you're planning a vacation like three months from now and you're getting all excited about this vacation and you're just kind of rapidly going through your work just to kind of get through your work in order to get to that vacation that's going to happen three months from now. And now in the present moment, you're having all these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings. But then when the time comes for you to get on the airplane and go on your holiday, the plane is delayed or perhaps it's even canceled. 
Now you're going to be frustrated and angry or irritable. Or maybe something in the present moment you're thinking about the future, maybe you're afraid of death or you're fearful of being poor or homeless or something like this. And now in the present moment, you have this fear, these painful feelings that arise based on something that hasn't even happened, that the mind is just thinking about. That's the sixth sense base. So most people are usually familiar with the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the body as being the five senses. But there's this sixth sense base in Buddhist teachings that is the mind. And that's because the mind can cause itself to be discontent by longing and yearning and clinging to things in the past or the future. And now in the present moment, it can experience discontentedness. Then there's the fifth one, which is ill will. This central desire and ill will really go together. So let me first explain the ways that we eliminate the central desire is we use breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. That's training your mind to be able to be restrained because what central desire is, is this is where the mind is longing, yearning and having craving. So if you can train your mind to let go through breathing mindfulness meditation, then in the moment when you're observing your mind's longing and yearning, you can restrain the mind and pull it back. And then also with generosity, because when the mind has central desire, it tends to be very selfish and self-centered. It just holds on and holds on and holds on. It's not willing to share. So when you practice generosity where you're giving and you're sharing, this is actually helping your mind to let go. So if you share your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources more than is strictly required in any given situation without any expectation of anything in return, this is helping you to train the mind to let go. And now you can train your mind through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to gradually build the ability to easily let go of things. Because when you're chasing with central desire, you can only get pleasant feelings if you get what you want. And those feelings aren't permanent. They're eventually going to be eliminated because they arise, they change, and they fade away. Because you formed your inner feeling based on some impermanent condition. So because that condition is impermanent, the feelings in the mind are also impermanent as well. So as long as you're chasing with central desire, you'll sometimes get what you want, and then sometimes you won't. And then when you don't, that's when the ill will will arise. The ill will is the hostility, the anger, the hatred, the aggression, the bitterness, the animosity, the irritation and annoyance that is in the mind. This will arise and oftentimes our intentions, our speech and our actions will now be polluted because the mind is now polluted with this ill will and you'll be bitter and harsh and hostile and aggressive towards people and even resentful and having animosity towards another being. And as long as you're putting that out towards others, this is going to come back to you. So by you training your mind to eliminate central desire, this will knock down your cravings so there'll be less ill will that will arise, but you still need to address the ill will as well. We address the ill will with loving kindness meditation. By practicing loving kindness meditation, you're training the mind and transforming it. You're essentially rewiring the mind to no longer be hateful and have ill will, but instead to have this goodwill 
where you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. You practice this in meditation, and it's like filling up the gas tank. And then you go out into the world through your intentions, your speech, and your actions, and you practice being loving and kind towards others. And that's where the real work to transform the mind is really happening in the practice. What you're doing coming to these classes is you're learning, and you're starting to reflect. But then you take these things that I'm sharing with you and you start practicing things like loving kindness meditation. And then you're practicing right intention, right speech and right action to then be able to transform the mind in your daily life. And as you're being more loving and kind to others, you'll see more and more loving and kind things coming back to you. So you're transforming your mind through the actual training and through the actual work. So these are the lower fetters. I'm gonna also be discussing the higher fetters as well, but I would like to give you guys a chance to talk and ask any questions that you like about the lower fetters. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like, and we can go in and talk more about any one of these fetters, the symptoms that you will see, as well as the solutions to implement. So it looks like we have a question here on Zoom from EY. He says, how do you address the doubt or investigate the teachings that central desire is one of the ten fetters and is part of discontentment? Most people will enjoy or feel happy with central pleasures and will continue to pursue these activities from time to time. Or should we try to pursue these activities and if it does not happen, we try to let go of it without ill will? Yes, that's exactly what you're interested in doing, EY, is that as an enlightened being, you're going to still exist in the world. There's still going to be contact coming through the six sense bases. And as an enlightened being, you will enjoy things about life. You will enjoy things way more in life than you ever did in the unenlightened state. In the unenlightened state, you can only enjoy things if this condition is met, if this condition is met, if this condition is met, and this condition is met then I will be happy. But those conditions are very rarely all met at one time, so then the mind ends up in these painful feelings. So your mind's going up and down. By the time you get rid of central desire, that craving desire attachment, you can be happy and joyful no matter what's going on because your mind has been trained to no longer have craving. So you can go to the movies, you can go out to dinner, you can go dancing, you can go on a car ride, you can go on holiday, you can do all these different things that your mind is interested in doing, but you do it without craving desire attachment, without longing and yearning. So let's use that example of traveling on a holiday. So if you're enlightened and you don't have central desire, you might still choose that, hey, you know what? I would like to go to Japan and check out Japan and see what Japan's all about. Okay, well, let's plan this trip. Let's make some wise decisions. We'll plan that out for three months from now. Let's start booking our plane tickets, our hotel, and all these different things. But all the while, you understand in permanence, and you know that all these things can easily change. Your flights can change. The hotel can change. You're not going to have expectations of what everything needs to be like in this perfect vacation, locking in your vacation and scheduling it down to the minute. And then when things don't happen your way, then you would get angry or frustrated. Instead, as an enlightened being, you can plan the holiday. And then as you go forward with your travel, 
travels, you're going to know that impermanence is going to happen. Maybe the flight's delayed. Maybe the taxi takes a wrong turn. Maybe the hotel isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be and you change your mind and make different decisions. But all the while, you're doing it joyfully. You're not complaining. You're not irritated. You're not annoyed because of all these changes and different things that are happening, where in the unenlightened state, you would be because you would have certain cravings and attachments and certain desires, wanting things to be a certain way. And you can only be happy when you experience things in that way. So therefore, when you travel and things don't meet your expectations, you'll be irritable or grumpy or frustrated. But when you let go of all of that and you realize this impermanence, then you can go forward and you can enjoy no matter what you're doing. So what you're doing is training the mind to learn how to enjoy something in the present moment. And then when it's done and over, it's done and over and you move on to the next thing. Where oftentimes using the same example, if we go on holiday and then we end up going back home to our life in the unenlightened state, your life, you might feel like, yeah, it's uh, kind of miserable. Maybe I don't like my job so much. Maybe I don't like where I live. Maybe you don't like the friends and people that are around you. Maybe you feel kind of bored and lonely in certain situations. You're having this thrilling, amazing time while you're on holiday, on vacation. But now someone might feel like, ah, I got to go back to my mundane life. Well, by the time you get to enlightenment, your life, no matter where you are, is very fulfilling and very satisfying. Your life and your holiday, it's essentially the same thing. You're just always enjoying no matter what you're doing. So you're not experiencing the irritation and the agitation and the annoyance because your mind is fully fulfilled. Where in the unenlightened state with central desire, the mind thinks that these outside things are going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So the mind will have a tendency to chase and chase and chase and chase and chase. And it wants these external things to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So we'll chase a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or we'll chase a new car or a new house or a new computer or a new phone or a new job or new friends or this, that, or the other thing. The mind will just chase it and chase it and chase it and keeps thinking that the next new shiny object around a corner is going to provide some lasting satisfaction. And then once it gets what it wants, it does get the temporary happiness, but that ultimately fades over time. So when you can learn how to pursue things as a goal, as an objective, as an interest, you can go on this holiday, you can go on this vacation, you can have a piece of chocolate cake, you can go to the gym and exercise, you can do all the things that you do now, but you do them without discontentedness. So one of the ways to think about it is like before enlightenment, if you're washing dishes, you might be grumpy and irritable and frustrated while you're washing the dishes. Well, after enlightenment, you're still going to wash dishes, but you're going to do it with a smile on your face. You're going to be joyful. You're going to be satisfied and fulfilled. You're not going to be complaining or something like this because maybe you have to wash dishes. Instead, the enlightened mind understands that this is a temporary situation. I need to go in here, wash a few dishes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, it's over, no big deal. And then I'm off to the next thing where when the mind is craving, it wants to watch TV, or if it wants to play video games, or it wants to be on social media, it's not interested in going in there to wash the dishes. So it feels so boring or mundane to go in there and wash the dishes so the mind can be disgruntled. So you're essentially rewiring the mind by getting rid of these pollutions 
You're rewiring the mind to enjoy life no matter what's happening, despite what's happening around you. So if you go traveling and you show up in your hotel room, maybe the air condition is broken, maybe the room's a lot smaller than you thought, maybe there's a lot of loud noise in the hotel, you will figure out, how do I solve this? Do I switch to another hotel? Can I get a refund? Do I stay here one night and then I try to move tomorrow? You know, you'll figure it out because your mind will be calm and it'll be peaceful and you'll be able to use your wisdom to make wise decisions to be able to then make decisions to improve the situation. Whereas if you get angry and frustrated and agitated in that situation, you're not going to be able to access wisdom to then make wise decisions to move beyond this. So you're training the mind to be fulfilled and joyful based on the present moment and what exists rather than longing yearning for something that you don't have. What the unenlightened mind does is the grass is always greener on the other side. It always wants what it doesn't have. So it chases and chases and chases. And then it gets to the other side of the fence and it's happy for a period of time, but then it realizes it doesn't like being on that side of the fence either, right? Well, an enlightened mind, you're just enjoying wherever you're at, no matter what side of the fence you're on, you're just enjoying it immensely. So that can perhaps help you to understand what you're sharing there and what your question is. Let's see what other questions we have here. Yes, uh, I see your, your comment there, EY. It looks like you have a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? It's, it's a developing a life practice. It's not hurry up and get to enlightenment. It's going to take some time. And that's why you'd like to get the breathing mindfulness meditation going. That's why I taught this four-part series early like this so that you can start getting that going. You start getting some meditation going in your life, start getting some moral conduct going in your life with right speech, right action, and right livelihood things can be drastically different. This is where the Buddha started people, is understanding right view and developing their meditation practice and developing their moral conduct. If you can start working on those things, that really narrows it down about the things that you need to really work on the, the most. This class here is just cluing you into the fetters so you have an introduction to them. But really what you would like to do is work on that moral conduct in your meditation practice all the while understanding right view that your mind is causing its own discontent feelings. And then slowly but surely, as you build that up, you'll start seeing more and more improvement in your condition of your mind in your life. We have some questions here on YouTube from Rhonda. She's asking, am I understanding that the root of change comes through loving kindness meditation, that the meditation gives strength to the Eightfold Path, etc.? I like the phrase that you are rewiring the mind through the concept of Buddhism. So the answer to your question is yes, Rhonda, but there's more than just loving kindness meditation that you need. So loving kindness meditation is going to cultivate in the mind this genuine interest in seeing others be well, this goodwill. So you're training your mind in meditation, essentially rewiring it. Instead of going down this path of anger and hatred and ill will that the mind is used to, that in the past, before we understood this path, if we get something agreeable, 
we go down this path of happiness, excitement, elation, yay, 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 but then we end up in painful feelings somewhere down the line. Or if we experience something disagreeable, we go down this path of anger, hatred, and ill will, where we're bitter and harsh and hostile to people. And now we know where that path leads. It leads to broken relationships and difficulties and struggles. So what we learn to do is we learn to rewire the mind in meditation, to have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And we understand through right view that any painful feelings you're experiencing, like anger, is being caused by your own mind. So you're using loving kindness meditation to rewire the mind to have goodwill towards all beings. And then where the real transformation is happening is in your daily life, through your intentions, your speech, and your actions, being loving and kind. The meditation is there, as you say, to support you in practicing and strengthening the Eightfold Path so that now with loving kindness meditation, you're more easily able to then practice right intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. If you didn't have loving kindness meditation on board, then it would be very challenging for you to practice right intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So that's why this Wednesday, I'm starting a four-part series on loving kindness meditation early in the group learning program like this to help you build up your practice. So if you've been practicing breathing mindfulness meditation for the last four weeks, as I've been guiding students to build up that practice, now it would be an ideal time to start bringing in loving kindness meditation because these are going to help you to eradicate central desire and ill will. So you can start bringing down the discontentedness that you're experiencing and bring down the harmful moral conduct that you've maybe been doing at some points in the past that are now affecting your relationships. You can bring all that stuff down because with less central desire, there's automatically going to be less anger. But then you need to go in and actively work to eliminate the ill will. It's kind of like the loving kindness meditation is almost like a jackhammer breaking up the ill will so that now when you go out into the world, your mind can be liberated and free. And rather than holding back and being resentful and choosing to be bitter and hostile towards people, instead you transform the mind to be loving and kind with goodwill towards people through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. Chrissy has a question here on YouTube as well. Teacher David, it is found that the mind would much prefer to be home when on holiday discontent is noticed. This would be when I would practice doing this more with increased meditation. Yes, if you're noticing that your mind is attached to being at home and you don't want to go out and travel, then you need to build up your practice with all the Eightfold Path to include breathing mindfulness meditation and the others. But then over time, when you feel like you're ready, you would like to put the mind in the situation that it doesn't like. You would like to put the mind in the situation where you're traveling. Maybe you're even just going to a friend's house in your same town and, and sleeping over at their house for a couple of nights. This can be like a, a small a bit of impermanence rather than like traveling to Thailand, for example, where you're really far away. That's like jumping in the deep end of the pool, perhaps. So maybe what you do is you go to a friend's house in your same town or one or two towns over, right? And now it's just kind of like you're driving and you're, you're kind of doing a little bit of impermanence to the mind and let it get adjusted to that and start finding pleasure and, and enjoy being out and about. And now you come home, you spend some time there, you feel comfortable with that, but now you introduce some more impermanence. Maybe now you travel a state or two away, right? And now you 
allow the mind to get comfortable and acclimated with that. And then you come home and you relax and you enjoy. And then maybe you build up to traveling really far away to some other distant place. And this is the way you can incrementally, gradually move the mind towards experiencing impermanence and eliminating its cravings. This is part of chapter 12 and 13 that we're gonna be talking about here in the group learning program. But Chrissy's taken this program before, so I would was interested in confirming this for you, Chrissy, that yes, that's what you would like to do, is put the mind in the situation that it's uncomfortable with. Because of central desire, what the mind's gonna wanna do is hold on to what it's attached to. It thinks that it can push away traveling in your example. It thinks that it can avoid this and push it away and therefore everything will be perfect if I can just hold on to this house and stay in this house all the time. This is pushing things away. But you can't do that. You can't get liberated from the mind by doing that. So by putting your mind in the situation that it finds uncomfortable, this is where you'll train your mind to eliminate the cravings. I'll give you another example. Bailan doesn't really eat very much grapes because here in Thailand, we don't really have grapes, but I grew up in America. We have grapes all the time. So I ate grapes all the time. So I saw some grapes here in Thailand and I was like, oh, I'm going to buy some grapes. So I bought some grapes, brought them home and he just kept looking at them kind of strange and kind of odd <laughs> and he was seeing me eat them. <clears throat> and I suggested to him to eat them and have some. And he was like, no, nah, no way. I'm not touching those grapes. You know, they're, they're red and they're dark color. You know, no, I'm not going to touch those things. So he had this kind of aversion to them, even though he had never really had them before. So I encouraged him to try it. And eventually he tried it. And at first has, you know, got this ugly face and, you know, was very repulsed by it because of his craving, right? He was craving certain fruits that he's used to here in Thailand. So now when he tasted this new flavor through the tongue, he was repulsed by it. So then uh, the next day, I suggested to him to eat another one. And then when he ate another one, his face was a mere fraction of what it was, the first grape that he had. So if he would have kept avoiding the grapes and never ate the grapes, then he would continue to have this craving. So by putting his mind in the situation that it was craving something else and it was averse to the grapes, by putting his mind in the situation with the grapes, he needed to train his mind to overcome that craving, desire, attachment, and that aversion. So that's the way that you do it with all these cravings, except if there is like a harmful craving, like if somebody craved to snort cocaine, for example, or they were craving to shoot up heroin or something like that. You're not interested in putting the mind in that situation. Or if somebody was craving to go to a brothel, right? You're not going to be interested in putting your mind in that situation. But things like grapes or holidays or vacations, or if you're afraid of heights or spiders or things like this, you can desensitize the mind to eliminate its central desire by putting it in the situation that it's averse to. And that will help it to overcome its cravings. Let's see, I'm going to check Facebook and see if we have any questions there. I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook. So let's go on and talk about the next five fetters, which are referred to as the higher fetters. I'm going to discuss desire for form and desire for formless together because these are essentially very similar in nature, but they're separated. What desire for form is, is where somebody has a desire to exist in the animal realm or the human realm. That's why we call it desire for form, because these two realms have physical form. So an individual is craving existence. They're holding on to existence and they either want to exist as an animal or a human. 
Desire for formless is a desire or a craving, a longing, a yearning to exist in the realms of hell, the afflicted spirit realm, or heavenly realm. Wanting to exist in the heavenly realm is quite common amongst a lot of people. You know, there are people who have a desire to exist in hell or in the afflicted spirit realm, but that's what this is referring to, a craving, desire, attachment for existence. So in order to eliminate this, you're not interested in craving, desiring, attached to existence, because if you're craving, desiring, attached to being in existence, you're holding on to this world and you're not wanting to let go. So therefore, you're going to keep coming back. And whenever you experience birth, that means you're going to experience sickness, aging and death. You're going to experience grief, pain, displeasure, and despair all over again and again and again and again. So as long as the mind has this craving for existence, you're going to keep coming back into the world in one of these five realms. But also, if you have a craving for non-existence where you don't want to exist, maybe somebody has suicidal thoughts, that would be destructive for the mind too. So craving existence would be unwise, but also craving non-existence would be unwise as well. So you're looking to come to this middle way where you just understand that, okay, this body and this mind is in existence, and I'm just going to reside in the present moment and train my mind to be content with being in this present moment. I'm not going to crave for a future existence, but I'm not going to crave for non-existence either. You just understand that, yes, there is an existence here. And now that you're in this human realm, let's use this ideal existence to be able to train the mind and get to enlightenment. So by the time somebody eliminates desire for form and desire for formless, they will have no fear of death any longer. Because when the mind's holding on to existence, then one will oftentimes fear death or if they're fearing what might occur after their death. So the way to eliminate the fear of death and also this desire for existence is there's a reflection on death that you can actually close your eyes and convince your mind that you've actually died. And then you can be like a fly on the wall and kind of observing what happens from there whether it's like a funeral and, uh, and people coming to grieve your death or say goodbye to you or whatever it is, you kind of convince your mind that you've died and you're like a fly on the wall observing for maybe 15 or 20 minutes of this experience of you having died. And you're not planning it, you're not aspiring for it, but you're just confronting your own death and realizing that this is going to occur. You can't avoid it. It doesn't matter. You are going to die. We are all going to die at some point. So we can confront it on our own terms. Rather than allowing it to sneak up on us and catch us by surprise, we can actually reflect or contemplate on our own death. And then we can get comfortable with our own death and get to the point where we don't crave existence, but we don't crave non-existence either. We just understand that there is an existence. And now let's make the best use of it and actually train our mind and work to get to enlightenment. So this is what desire for form and desire for formless is. Number eight is conceit. The first fetter of personal existence view in conceit is part of the ego. That's what we call the ego. So what conceit is, is this is the arrogance, the pride, the judging other people, measuring and comparing that you're either above people or that you're below people. This is what we call the ego. 
During the lifetime of the Buddha, this word didn't exist, and he described it as personal existence view and conceit, and it actually helps to understand the ego in this way because there are certain symptoms that are unique to personal existence view, and there are certain solutions that you implement based on personal existence view. And then there's conceit, which is going to produce different symptoms, and there's different solutions for it. So it's actually helpful to see it as these two things, but then just understand that when we talk about the ego, we're talking about the combination of these two things. With conceit in the human realm, it's going to cause you all kinds of difficulties because when you're putting yourself above people and you're looking down on people and you're talking to people in that way, people are going to oftentimes reject you because of the arrogance and the pride and the judging others and measuring and comparing. But also just as dangerous as putting yourself above people and talking down is putting yourself below people. If there are certain people that you admire and that you just are all struck by their presence, like a celebrity or maybe a politician or something like this, if you put yourself below people and you look up to people in such awe, your mind's going to be uncommon and shaken up when you're around them. So you would like to get to the point where you don't put yourself above people and you don't put yourself below people, but you just see all beings as being equal. Whether it's a celebrity, whether it's the president or prime minister of your country, whether it's a famous superstar or something like this, everybody needs to be viewed equally in your mind. Even though in society, people think about society as having this hierarchy and there's people above and below, it's unwise for you to allow your mind to think that way. You would like to view everybody as equal. So if I'm a street sweeper and I'm sweeping the streets of the city, I'm just as valuable or important as the president or prime minister of a country. If you allow your mind to think that you're below people, now you're going to feel miserable. But also if you feel like you're above people, the arrogance and pride and boastfulness is going to stand in the way of you living harmoniously with all beings. So even though other people might measure and compare and judge and put people above and below each other, it's important that you don't think that way. We're all equal. It's just that we perform different roles. So the president of a country or some superstar, they're performing a certain role in society. But just as important is the person who cleans the street. They're just as important because we enjoy clean streets. And if we didn't have somebody to clean the street, then we would all live on dirty streets. So this is very important for your mind to view everybody as equal. Where conceit is coming from is in our past existences, in our animal existences, we needed conceit because that's how we survived. As a pack of wolves, we needed to know who was the alpha male and alpha female because they're the ones who were teaching us to hunt. They're the ones who were breeding and mating. They're the ones who were teaching us how to fight and defend our pack of wolves. And without the alpha male and alpha female and knowing who to take our cues from as a pack of wolves, we wouldn't have survived. We would have died. And we were elephants. We needed to know who's the matriarch of our herd because she's going to show us where to eat. She's going to show us the watering holes. She's going to show us the migration paths and things like this. And without us knowing who the matriarch of our herd is and who's above us, we wouldn't have survived. So as an animal, we needed a pecking order right? That's what animals have. They have a certain pecking order. But in the human realm, our mind has been conditioned that way due to so many countless births in the animal realm that now in the human realm, this conceit gets developed more and more in the mind. And we start putting ourselves above people and below people. And now it 
causes us difficulties and we can't reside harmoniously with all beings. So wherever you see this conceit arising, again, you would like to apply the Eightfold Path to cut that off and let it go. Where you see arrogance and pride and judging others and measuring and comparing, you see that you're being boastful or arrogant in certain situations, cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to do that. Use the mindfulness. And then where you see that this is starting to arise, cut it off and let it go. Apply that right effort. Even if you're mid-sentence or even if it's on the tip of your tongue, cut it off and let it go so that you don't perform that speech or action or even the intentions of this arrogance and pride. And then there's proactive things that I'm going to teach you as part of chapter 16. This is where you might sleep on the floor. I know this might sound strange for some of you, depending on where you've been brought up and what culture you've been part of, but sleeping on the floor is one of the absolute best things you can ever do for conceit. If you know that you have arrogance and pride and boastfulness in your mind to a certain degree, and pretty much every unenlightened being is going to have a certain degree of that, Sleeping on the floor is one of the best things you can do. You can get rid of your frame, you can get rid of your box spring, you can just put the mattress straight on the floor. And getting down into bed and getting up out of bed each day, it's gonna really help you to eliminate the conceit. And there's other things that we do as well. Like here in Thailand, we lie to people. This is practicing humbleness. Even when I'm riding my motorbike and going in and out of our village, there's security guards at the front, but I really think of them as greeters because nothing bad ever happens in our villages or around Thailand. I mean, sure, there's certain things that happen occasionally, but I don't really see any of that stuff. So they're kind of like greeters that when guests come to the village, these security guards kind of greet them. So I do the same thing. When I come into the village, I will greet them. Or when I'm leaving out of the village, I will bow to them. Or if I'm riding my motorbike, I'll bow my head. Doing this constantly throughout your day, 10, 20, 30, 50 times as I'm interacting with students and people at restaurants and different things like this, I will lie to these people. And this is for me. I'm not expecting anything back from them. They will typically wind me back, not always, but typically. But I'm doing this for my practice to ensure that my mind remains humble and down to earth. So these are a couple of things that you can do. There's other things as well. Like if you feel like there's any tasks that are beneath you, you can choose to do those tasks. Like there was a period of time where I thought washing dishes and mopping floors and sweeping and changing my bed sheets and things like this were beneath me because I had acquired a certain amount of wealth and I had maids and I had employees that were doing these things for me. And at one time I never thought that way. But then as I was becoming more and more wealthy, my mind started thinking that way. And then when I realized that this was going on, I had to transform my mind. I started washing my own clothes. I started scrubbing the floors. I started cleaning the bathrooms and changing the sheets and doing all of these different things. And then of course I enjoyed it because I used to do it in the past. And now I got a chance to go back to start doing those things again. And I really enjoy those types of things. So there's these things and others that you can be doing and as you gradually build up your practice to do these types of things it wears away this conceit but always remember that that eightfold path of mental discipline is there that right mindfulness and right effort that wherever you see arrogance or boastfulness or the mind is wanting to judge somebody or even judge yourself 
you should always cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to do that. You're rewiring the mind, not allowing it to continue to fire in that way. So now you can rewire the mind to be loving and kind and humble and down to earth and not think degrading and disparaging things about others. Number nine is restlessness. We might refer to this as maybe some anxiety, you know, that's part of the restlessness. This is where the mind is confused, distracted, worried, having a restless state of mind. It's the opposite of singleness of mind. If you ever sit somewhere and you're like with your fingers, or if your knee is bobbing up and down, or you're like tapping your foot, this is because the mind's overactive, it's restless. And because the mind is the boss and the body is the employee, that overactive mind is coming out through your body with you tapping your fingers or tapping your foot or bobbing your knee or whatever it is. This repetitive motion that you're doing with the body is because the mind is overactive. So you would like to calm the mind down with breathing mindfulness meditation and arising this equanimity, this calmness and composure in the mind. And of course, practicing generosity is going to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So as you calm the mind down and calm down the mental activity, you'll notice that there won't be this restlessness in the mind. And you'll notice that if there's any overactivity in the body, you can calm that down too. You got to work on the mind first with breathing mindfulness, meditation, generosity, and arising equanimity. But then in daily life where you see maybe you're tapping things or you're tapping a pencil or you're having these repetitive movements, you need to train your mind to cut that off and let it go and redirect the mind to something else. Don't allow it to sit there and continue to fire with this overactivity and this restlessness. Rewire the mind, reconfigure it to now do something different. And then it'll become easier and easier for you to do that. Then the fetter of all fetters, which is number 10. This is the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, sometimes referred to as delusion, confusion, misunderstanding. This ignorance or unknowing of true reality is where the mind just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It lacks wisdom. It doesn't understand things like the three universal truths or the four noble truths, which I taught a few weeks ago. We don't understand we're causing our own discontentedness in the unenlightened state. We blame it on everyone else. We think everyone else is causing us to be angry. And we think that we're justified in our bitterness and hostility and aggression. And we think that somehow this is going to help us. So that's why we keep doing it. It's like an animal. The unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. When we don't get what we want, we show our teeth, we growl, we roar. That's what an animal does. So in the human state, even though we're human in the human existence, the unenlightened mind is functioning very much like an animal because of this ignorance and this unknowing of true reality. We become bitter and harsh and hostile, not understanding what we don't understand. We have this unknowing of true reality. We think it's the outside world that is causing us so much difficulties. And we go around and not only blame other people, but we tend to try to fix everybody else to do things our way, or we will push people out of the way. So by pushing people out of the way, being bitter and harsh, hostile, by putting our expectations on people, we never solve the problem. We just keep getting angry over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because the mind's ignorant. 
The mind is unknowing of true reality. It doesn't understand the Eightfold Path. It doesn't know the five precepts or the three poisons or the natural law of gamma and things like this. We don't understand the 10 fetters in the unenlightened state. We don't understand sensual desire and ill will and personal existence view and all these other things. We don't understand conceit and these different things that we've been talking about today. So this is the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality in the way that you're trying to eliminate this is you're transforming the mind by acquiring wisdom. That's why I teach people when they first start learning with me to never believe anything that I teach. Because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. You can't get to wisdom through belief. You can only get to wisdom in the eradication of ignorance through learning, reflecting to independently verify, and by practicing. And this is what's going to ultimately arise wisdom in the mind so that then you can eradicate these pollutions. So these individual fetters are being eradicated throughout your journey to enlightenment, but ignorance is always the last one to go for every single practitioner who decides that they're gonna get to enlightenment. You might intellectually understand the teachings of the Buddha to a certain degree, but because of the ignorance in the mind, it struggles to actually practice the teachings. The ignorance is there all the way up until the mind is enlightened because someone can intellectually understand the teachings, but then the mind is really struggling to actually practice it because it still has this unknowing of true reality. It doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. So the real transformation from ignorance to wisdom is happening partially through the intellectual learning and through the reflection, but the real transformation is happening in your practice. This is how people can know when another person is enlightened, is by looking at their practice and the way that they interact in the world and the condition of their mind. That if you intellectually understand the teachings, but you're not practicing them, there's still ignorance in the mind. So there's a certain intellectual pursuit on this path, but then the real work to transform the mind is through your practice. And that's what's gonna ultimately eliminate the ignorance from the mind. So let me know what questions you guys have on these higher fetters, and then we're gonna be talking about the four stages of enlightenment. You can ask those questions in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So it looks like we have a question here from Francis. So how about aspire to attain the four stages of enlightenment, like attaining stream enter? Is this craving for form and formless? So it's all about how the mind thinks about it. An individual surely could have a craving desire attachment for not only the first stage of enlightenment, but even for enlightenment itself. It's not the fact that you're working towards this goal that makes it a craving desire attachment. It's how the mind relates to it. So if you have a longing, a yearning, you're chasing after the first stage of enlightenment or enlightenment itself, then it's a craving. But if you did nothing and you never did anything to improve the condition of your mind, you're not gonna experience progress there either. The mind's complacent. So what you're doing is you're practicing the middle way in order to ensure you're not having craving, desire, attachment. You're gradually working towards enlightenment or the first stage of enlightenment as a goal, as an objective or an interest, realizing that it's gonna take multiple years, that you're gonna to need to read books, come to classes, ask questions, get personal guidance from teachers. There's gonna be lots and lots and lots and lots of meditation that you're gonna to need to do, right? So you're gradually working towards it. Whereas if you were chasing, 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 
you're going to burn out within a number of months. I've seen this happen with students before that come onto the path and they're so excited and they're so eager and got this craving to get to this peaceful and joyful mental state. They might stick around for a few weeks or a few months and learning and then a matter of time, you know, they burn out their craving and now they're gone, right? So the way that you really get to enlightenment without a craving desire attachment is you need to sustain your growth with consistency. You gradually, slowly, but surely work towards the goal, realizing that it's going to be a multiple year pursuit, but you do it little by little, little tiny increments, right? You mix in other things that you're doing. You're working, you're having family life, you're going and doing different things. You're practicing the teachings when you're at work or when you're doing various things. So you can gradually work towards this without a craving desire attachment. And I see, Francis, you have your hand up. So I don't know if you have a follow-up question or a completely different question, but you can go ahead and ask if you like. Okay. Um, for me, I understand what you're saying about, you know, uh, don't crave for the uh, stream entry because I originally wanted to change stream entry. It was my uh, initial goal. And uh, you did tell me that to move forward to the highest level. So I set it as a goal for myself to attain enlightenment of the highest level possible in this life. So would that be a form of a craving? Because I do, uh, sometimes in my uh, so-called quiet moments, I, uh, I, I say to myself, you know, that I'm thankful and grateful that I have this opportunity to learn, uh, to attain the uh, uh, highest level of uh, attain, uh, enlightenment in this life. So uh, let me know whether am I doing it correctly? Am I, is it craving or is it to go or what? This is where you have to look at your mind, that it's not the object itself. Like, for example, you can't say like having a mobile phone is a craving. You can't say that. So you can't say like the fact that you're looking to get to enlightenment. You can't say that that is a craving in and of itself because we're just saying that you have this object of enlightenment that you're working towards. It's all about how the mind pursues it. Is there a longing? Is there a yearning? Is there this chasing after enlightenment? Are you feverishly reading books? Are you longing and yearning? When you notice that your mind isn't peaceful, are you discontent because you're discontent, right? This is what somebody will experience when they're having a craving for enlightenment itself. Is like, say, say their phone breaks and now they get discontent because of their phone is broken. And now not only are they discontent because the phone's broken, but now because they're discontent because the phone's broken, they're discontent because they're discontent. It's like, ah, oh, I'm not enlightened yet. So now I'm even more discontent, right? So this is where you have to look at your mind. You can't just say, okay, I'm going for enlightenment and I'm trying to get to enlightenment. Is that a craving or not? It's all about how the mind is longing and yearning for it. It's not the object itself. It's how the mind pursues it. It's the relationship you have with this object. So a phone, for example, which I think is a perfect example, you can be attached to the phone where somebody does have an attachment to the phone, but somebody can also have a phone and not be attached to it. So it's not the object itself. The same thing, like I know you have a wife. You can have a wife and be attached to her where if she dies or she gets sick, you could be you know, agitated or frustrated or, or sad or bored or lonely. But also you can have a wife 
and not be attached to her too and just love her and appreciate her and all these different things. So it's not the object itself. It's about how the mind relates to this thing, what's going on inside the mind. And this is where your mindfulness is so key that you need to observe what's going on in the mind to be able to determine if it's an attachment or not. Okay, for me, actually, I am not actually got uh, craving for enlightenment. Uh, I take it as the more important thing is what I'm doing every day, my training uh, on a daily basis and the practice every day towards that goal. So am I on the right, uh, right frame of mind? Yes, that's what you would like to do is just gradually, consistently work towards the goal. And you know that, okay, I need yeah. to gradually build up my meditation practice. Yeah. I need to gradually read these books. I need to gradually come to classes and get personal guidance, ask questions. And you just gradually work towards that. It's like a journey. You're out on a stroll, right? Rather than going like point A to point B and like feverishly walking from point A to point B, that would be like what craving would be. But instead, you're kind of out on a stroll and you're out on a little journey and you're still going from point A to point B, but you're just gradually walking along and enjoying the journey rather than trying to bolt for point B. Okay, I got it. So I think I'm on the right track. Thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome. Great question. Let's see. Do we have any questions anywhere else? I see your thank you there, Chrissy. You're welcome. Pleased to help you. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else. So let's start talking about the four stages of enlightenment because as you're eliminating the fetters, your mind's gonna move through these four stages of enlightenment. First, you're putting together the Eightfold Path as I've been talking in the past and you're starting to get to that point where you experience the jhanas. And this can take many months and even years to be able to get to the jhanas. It can take a year or two for some people, even longer for some people to get to the point where the mind is experiencing those preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And now when the mind's experiencing the jhanas, which is like the light bulb flickering, giving you these glimpses of what enlightenment is like, now you start focusing more closely on eliminating the fetters. But in reality, everything you've been doing has been working to eliminate the fetters, even practicing things like the five precepts. When you're practicing to live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings and trying to restrain from killing, you're working to eliminate ill will in the mind. When you're working to practice not stealing, you're working on eliminating central desire, where you're not longing and yearning for things and stealing things from people. When you're practicing the elimination of sexual misconduct, which is the third precept, you're working on eliminating central desire. In all of these precepts, all of these aspects of the Eightfold Path, you're working to eliminate these pollutions in one way or the other. The Buddha is just not necessarily directly sharing that and showing you that correlation. But I can share with you that that is what's occurring and you can see the truth for yourself based on those couple of examples that I gave you. So the whole reason why the mind is experiencing the jhanas is because you're doing enough work with the Eightfold Path and all those other teachings that are connected to it, that you're starting to bring down the pollution in the mind. It hasn't been eliminated yet, but you're starting to bring down the pollution of the mind. So there's these improved qualities of mind that you're experiencing in the jhanas. And now when you're experiencing the jhanas and you see the light bulbs flickering, that's an indication to you that you're putting together the Eightfold Path fairly well. And you start focusing on the individual fetters and starting to eliminate those so that now your mind can move through the four stages of enlightenment and actually get to enlightenment itself. 
there's the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. We refer to these as stream enter. That's the first stage of enlightenment. The second stage of enlightenment is once returner. The third stage is called non-returner. And then there's arahant. This is actually an enlightened being. And then there's an individual called a Buddha, which is, isn't a stage of enlightenment. It's an individual who is an arahant, but they've gotten to that stage of enlightenment in a unique way. And I'm going to be explaining to you what each of these four stages are. And then you can ask questions on them if you like. So the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer, this individual has eliminated the first three fetters, personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behaviors and observances. And there's a certain amount of preliminary training that an individual needs to be able to allow the mind to eliminate those first three fetters because they need to develop the Eightfold Path in their meditation practice and their understanding of the natural law of gamma and other things like this. So you can't just go in and eliminate these first three from the very beginning. You need to put together the foundational teachings first. We call it stream enter because just like a log enters a stream and then it follows to the river and eventually gets to the ocean, this log is eventually going to get to the ocean. It's just a matter of time. The same thing is once you get to this first stage of enlightenment, you've entered the stream. You're going to eventually get to enlightenment. It's just a matter of time. Either in this life or some future life, you will get to enlightenment. Some of you guys that are learning, you might have been a stream enter in a previous life, and now you've made your way back to the teachings, and now you're going to either get to stream entry in this life or maybe even beyond that, perhaps. So you don't necessarily know that unless you've observed your past lives, but regardless, understanding that this first stage of enlightenment, we call it a stream enter, it's eliminating the first three fetters. There's some other things that an individual needs in order to get to stream entry. There's teachings like the five aggregates, the six sense bases, dependent origination, and things like this that an individual would need in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. I teach a retreat once a year that is all the teachings you need to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. I just taught it last month in August, and I'm going to be teaching it again in January. And now that we've got our live streaming working at the temple, I should be able to live stream that retreat. And then, of course, it's recorded so that you'll be able to watch all the teachings in one digestible retreat where you're able to learn all that you need to be able to get to this first stage of enlightenment. If somebody dies in the first stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn back into the human realm no more than seven times. It doesn't mean that they have to be reborn seven times, but no more than seven. It could be one, it could be two, it could be three, or any number, but there's not going to be an eighth existence for someone who's in the first stage of enlightenment. Then the second stage of enlightenment is called a once returner because this individual is going to return back to the human realm one more time if they die in that stage of enlightenment. They will come back to the human realm one more time and they will get to enlightenment in that existence. This individual would have already eliminated the first three fetters as part of becoming a stream enterer and they would have thinned out number four and five, which is central desire and ill will. These two fetters go hand in hand together. So someone would have significantly reduced their central desire and ill will. And as a result, with the mind getting into the first and second stage of enlightenment, there's going to be this significant reduction in discontentedness. By the time you get to that first stage of enlightenment, your discontentedness is a mere fraction of what it once was when you were off the path to enlightenment. So there's this 
significant reduction in discontentedness. And once you get to that first stage of enlightenment, from there, your mind won't regress backwards. While your mind is in the jhanas, those preliminary phases prior to the first stage of enlightenment, if you became complacent in your practice, your mind can regress, meaning you can build up a certain amount of mindfulness and concentration and peacefulness in the mind. But then if you became complacent in those jhanas, your mind would regress backwards and you would see a degrading of the qualities of the mind. But by the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, there won't be a a regression. There won't be a decline of the mind. Namely, because you've already eliminated doubt, you'll have no doubt that these teachings are leading to your enlightenment. You're just not enlightened yet. And you will stay dedicated and committed to gradually working towards the improvement of the condition of the mind. So in these first stage of enlightenment, your mind won't regress. There's a significant diminishing of discontentedness. And then as you're moving into the second stage of enlightenment, the same thing. There's this significant reduction of discontentedness because you've eliminated the first three fetters and you've greatly thinned number four and five, sensual desire and ill will. Then the third stage of enlightenment is called a non-returner. If an individual dies in this stage of enlightenment, they aren't going to be reborn back into the human realm. They will be reborn into the heavenly realm and they will get to enlightenment there from that realm. This individual has eliminated the first five fetters, all those lower fetters, personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior and observances, central desire and ill will. And because of having eliminated all those lower fetters, they're very rarely experiencing discontentedness. About once every three months, about once every six months, they're gonna have a little bit of ickiness in the mind, a little bit of agitation in the mind. And this is where you need to be really diligent in your practice because the mind can become complacent in this stage of enlightenment because it's very minimal and it's very infrequent that you experience discontentedness. So therefore, when it arises, it can last for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and then it's gone. And it only happens once every three months, once every six months, and you can cut it off and let it go pretty readily. So it doesn't really happen very frequently and it's very minimal when it does happen very insignificant so the mind can sometimes even just overlook it and not really be attentive to it but your mind's not enlightened yet and it's not ideal to be reborn into the heavenly realm that's not the ultimate goal the goal is to get to the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is completely liberated from discontentedness this is where the mind is actually enlightened We refer to it as an arahant. This is a word that was used during the lifetime of the Buddha. Today, we might just call this person an enlightened being, but this word arahant is still around and people still use it. They might even say that I'm pursuing arahantship. This is a phrase that people will tend to use. This individual has eliminated all the 10 fetters. All the pollutions are completely eliminated from the mind. There's no rebirth anywhere whatsoever and there's no more discontentedness. You've eliminated the conditions that are causing discontentedness and you've eliminated the conditions that are causing rebirth. So all 10 fetters are completely eliminated. The mind's completely purified. There is no more any discontentedness whatsoever. Then there's something called a Buddha. A Buddha is an arahant. They're an individual who's eliminated the 10 fetters from the mind. 
but we refer to them as fully perfectly enlightened because they attained enlightenment on their own without the help of any guidance of any teachers that they were able to completely purify their mind they figured out how to do it by themselves and because of that they have deep profound wisdom in the mind to be able to guide countless other people to enlightenment during their lifetime what they do is they essentially lay lights down along the path during their lifetime so that countless people during their life and after their life can understand the path to enlightenment and actually get to enlightenment. So there's three main criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. This isn't a stage of enlightenment. This is a unique individual that's very rare in the world. The last one that the world's currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. The first criteria is that a Buddha will attain enlightenment through their own efforts without any guidance from any teachers whatsoever. And there's a certain quality of mind of an individual who is going to become a Buddha that allows them to be able to do that. One of the things that a average human being is going to experience is they have a certain limited capacity in their mind that they can only store a certain amount of memories in their mind. So maybe like a hard drive, maybe you have like a 500 gigabyte hard drive or a one terabyte hard drive. Or some people might think they only have one megabyte of hard drive, right? Depends on where you're at in your exercising of your mind and your training of your mind. But nonetheless, you have a certain limited capacity of memory and storage space in your mind. And then as you experience new things in life, you have to delete old files in order to store new files. So in the last five to 10 years, you pretty much remember most of the things that have occurred in the last five to 10 years of your life. But when you think about your childhood, you have very spotty memories, very spotty memories about what happened in the past. And that's because you had to delete those old files in order to store the new files. Well, a person who's gonna become a Buddha doesn't have that same aspect of the mind. Instead, they have an unlimited capacity to be able to remember things, not only in this life, but in their previous lives as well. So what they do is they accumulate wisdom over multiple lifetimes, and they're able to bring forth all that wisdom together in the life where they actually become a Buddha. And now, based on their own wisdom and their own understanding, they're able to get to enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. So that's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is that they get to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. Gautama Buddha, had two teachers at the very beginning, but he mastered their teachings and his mind wasn't enlightened. And he actually got frustrated because he wasn't enlightened and he went off on his own for four years. So for the first two years, he was studying with teachers. It didn't lead to his enlightenment. So he got frustrated and he left and he went off and started working on his own mind. And so in the next four years, a total of six, he ends up getting to enlightenment on his own without the help of any teachers or any guides. The second criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they declare their independently discovered teachings during their life so that countless other people can get to enlightenment during their lifetime. They're going to dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings that led to their own enlightenment. And now during their lifetime, as they teach, countless people are going to get to enlightenment based on their work and their effort of sharing their independently discovered teachings countless people during their lifetime will get to enlightenment. The third criteria is that a Buddha is going to preserve their teachings in such a way that countless people can get to enlightenment after their death.
So once they die, not only did a whole lot of people get to enlightenment during their lifetime, but once they die, countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. So this is the three criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha, is they independently get to enlightenment by themselves, they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings, and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime, and they leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. And then there's some other criteria as well, which one of them is, I talked about having this profound memory that they can recall countless details about their existing life and their past life. They have an excellent memory, unlike other human beings, that their memory doesn't fade away. It doesn't get overwritten like an average human being. Then another aspect of a Buddha's mind is that they can quickly determine the condition of the mind of another person and they can understand the fetters that are in that person's mind and the teachings that that person is going to need in order to eradicate those fetters. So they're able to read and observe the certain unwholesome qualities and the wholesome qualities that are in the mind of their students. And this is one of the things that makes a Buddha so powerful in the world. Not only do they have deep, profound wisdom because they got to enlightenment by themselves, but they can observe the quality of mind of other people and now they can provide that person teachings to be able to help them overcome those challenges and difficulties in their mind. So they only observe the quality of people's minds in order to help them on the path to enlightenment. So if everybody knew that a Buddha was a Buddha, this would render a Buddha essentially ineffective. So if there was like a certain mark, like someone's ear was like turned, and if it was turned a certain way, everybody would know that person was a Buddha then that Buddha would be powerless because people would be on their best behavior around this Buddha. So a Buddha isn't going to come out into the world and declare to everybody that they're a Buddha. They're just going to reside humble and peaceful and go about their work and doing their work to actually help people get to enlightenment. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he did declare that he was a Buddha because People didn't know what a Buddha was, and humanity didn't understand what a Buddha was. So he needed to explain that he is a Buddha so that other people would know what a Buddha is. But today, if a person came out on the five o'clock news and declared that they were a Buddha, immediately people would discount that person because they would say, oh, they have ego, they have arrogance, they have boastfulness. Of course, they're not a Buddha. So a Buddha doesn't need to go around and perform a bunch of miracles to try to convince his students that he's a Buddha. A Buddha is going to be wise enough to be able to start offering their teachings in the world and share them in such a way that they're independently verifiable that is going to help people to awaken to these natural laws of existence. And then that is where the real power of a Buddha comes in, is that the Buddha can actually see the natural state of their student's mind. So by people not knowing who a Buddha is, a Buddha can actually be more effective. And then another thing that you'll see with a Buddha is that a Buddha has a deep practice of their own teachings. They're leading by example. They're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. Just like they teach through discourses, through their spoken words, they understand that they're teaching just as much through their actions. Through their speech and their actions, their students are observing how they interact in the world and the quality of their mind. And their students are learning just as much through a Buddha's speech and actions as they are through their spoken words and their discourses. So a Buddha understanding this, they would have a very deep practice of their own teachings. So if they're teaching right speech, 
they're going to be practicing right speech. If they're teaching right action, they're going to be practicing right action. So we might call this today, a Buddha would practice what they preach. Well, a Buddha is not going to preach. They're just providing guidance to help people understand the path to enlightenment. But you understand the analogy that they're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. And their students are learning just as much through observing their teacher and how they're actually practicing in the world as much as they are listening and learning from the resources and the classes that they're sharing. So that's some criteria to help you understand what a Buddha is. So they're enlightened, they're an arahant, but they're perfectly enlightened because of these criteria that you're learning about here. So let me know what questions you guys have. This is everything that I had to share with you guys today. And you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Looks like we have a question here from Francis. He says, what happens if there are no more rebirths where will the consciousness go to? So this is a undeclared teaching. The Buddha declared lots of teachings for 45 years and he taught how to get to enlightenment. But once a being gets to enlightenment and dies, he didn't declare what's next. He, of course, shared that there is no longer rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. But he didn't say whether a being exists or they don't exist. This is one of the big misunderstandings in the world about the teachings of the Buddha. Some people will tell you that once you get to enlightenment, you don't exist anymore. There is no existence. But the Buddha didn't say there is an existence or there isn't an existence. This is an undeclared teaching. And you need to get to the point where you don't have a craving to either exist or to not exist. That by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind is so peaceful and joyful if there is something after enlightenment, it's either as good as what you're experiencing in the enlightened mental state or better. And if you get to enlightenment and there isn't anything next, then okay, so be it. Your mind is so peaceful and so joyful, you don't care, right? You don't have a, a desire, a longing, a yearning to know what's next. The mind is just so peaceful in the present moment that it doesn't matter what's next, if anything at all. So the Buddha left it as an undeclared teaching. There's some more from Francis here as well. He says, we don't really know which stage of enlightenment we will attain, so it would be better to focus on training the mind and just let which stage we will attain to the future time upon death or rebirth. Is this right? The answer is I would say yes. If I was anybody that is aspiring to progress on this path, I would suggest that you set your goal or your objective to be an arahant, to get to arahantship, to eliminate all 10 fetters. And if you fall short of that for any reason, okay, so be it. You're a stream enter, you're a once returner, you're a non-returner. You're either in that first, second, or third stage of enlightenment. But if you set your goals on the first stage of enlightenment and you fall short of that, you're gonna be in the jhanas, your mind can regress, and you can be born in any of the five realms, right? That's hell, animal, afflicted spirit, human, or heavenly realm. But if you set your goal on otterhuntship and you fall short of that, you know, there's a good chance that you'll be in the first, second, or third stage of enlightenment and 
you're going to get to enlightenment. It's only a matter of time. But there's no reason why any of you can't get to enlightenment now in this life. Of course, a teacher can't guarantee for you that you're going to get to enlightenment because it's all about your own dedication, your determination, and your diligence, and what you apply to the path, and how you prioritize the work that you need to do in this lifetime. So we couldn't guarantee that an individual is going to get to enlightenment, but there's no reason why an individual who's studying can't get to enlightenment. You've got all the criteria that you need. You've got the true teachings of the Buddha, the original words of the Buddha. You've got a teacher that's very dedicated and motivated to helping you. You've got a certain amount of time that you have left in your life. You have maybe perhaps a certain amount of dedication and determination to get to enlightenment in this life. So gradually work towards the goal, make it a goal, make it an objective, and just continue to work and progress towards enlightenment. But don't get hung up on exactly what jhana you're in or exactly what stage of enlightenment you're in. Wherever you see any of these fetters arising, eliminate them. Don't allow them to continue to exist in the mind. If you see any of these symptoms of these fetters, cut them off and let them go. And then as you're learning the path more and more, I will be sharing with you the proactive things that you can be doing to eliminate these fetters. Everything that I'm teaching you, just like the Buddha, is guiding you to eliminate these fetters in one way or the other. These first four classes are just to help you see the totality of the path. And then in our next class, we're going to start from the very beginning, and I'm going to walk you through piece by piece by piece. And then it's going to take you time to build that up. That's why people take this group learning program one, two, three, four different times, because they're absorbing more and more of the teachings as they go through and they're hearing different questions. They're hearing a a question answered in a slightly different way in order to add more illumination to the question and the answer. So it's going to be a journey and it's an enjoyable journey. There's going to be struggles and difficulties along the way, but it's really quite fun. The more you can see your mind becoming liberated and more peaceful and joyful, there's a lot of fun in that. But yes, there's going to be struggles and difficulties along the way, but just set your goals for arahantship to eliminate all 10 fetters. And then if you fall short, you know, you'll fall short, but don't set your goal short because then you'll really fall short, right? All right, so great question there, Francis. Let's see, that looks like all the questions in Zoom so far. So let me see if we have any questions anywhere else. It looks like in YouTube, we have some questions from Rhonda. How does the Dalai Lama fit into all this? So the Dalai Lama is practicing a tradition of Buddhism called Vajrayana Buddhism. It's a form of Buddhism that comes about a thousand years after the death of the Buddha. And a lot of things were changed in the teachings. So he's practicing that form of Buddhism. And he's one monk of many monks. And he's sharing teachings. And he's a pretty well-known monk. But he's not like the Pope of Buddhism. A lot of times people think that he's the Pope of Buddhism, if you're familiar with Catholicism and the Pope. Uh, He's just one monk of many monks. There isn't one person who's all on top of Buddhism and then, you know, disseminating teachings for everybody to follow. The Dalai Lama is an individual that's part of one of the traditions of what's considered to be Buddhist teachings, but he's just one monk of many monks that are in the world. And here's another question from Rhonda. I certainly understand that he is not the Buddhaham, nor does he claim to be. He is adamant 
about proclaiming he is a mere human. Can you explain his existence to me through the eyes of Buddhism? Okay, so I think I just answered that. As far as I know, uh, the Dalai Lama hasn't declared that he's enlightened. I think he's even declared just the opposite. I think he's said that he's not enlightened because he does talk about having certain stress or fears or sadness and things like this. So I think I've seen something not too long ago where he said he wasn't enlightened. You know, that's his journey. It's his life. It's his journey to enlightenment. We're all on our own individual journey. So our goal isn't to determine whether somebody else is enlightened or not. Our goal is to focus on our own enlightenment. And that's where you're going to really see the most benefit in our life. And we don't have any questions on Facebook. No more in Zoom. You're welcome, Rhonda. I see your thank you there. And I I don't see any questions anywhere else. So what I'll do then is just in class by sharing with you, if you're going to be attending the future classes, which next Sunday we're going to be starting with chapter one, which is titled Universal Teachings, Love, No Harm, and Good Morals, that if you are interested in reading before class, you might decide to read the preface in chapter one of this first volume, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Some students might choose to read after class, and some might choose to read before and after class. Remember, there's the audiobook, there's the printed book. You can download it for free from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. You can order it on Amazon. You can print it yourself. You can use the audiobook version in YouTube or on the podcast. But I encourage you from this point forward to kind of integrate into your week where about 10 or 15 minutes a day, you're reading a little section of the chapter that we're studying that particular week. I'm also posting these in our Facebook group, so you can be reading it there as well. But what you would like to do is just kind of integrate 10 or 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes of reading per day. Whereas if you sat down and you read for a whole hour, this is like taking a big bite of food and trying to chew it and digest it. You would like to take your time to gradually build up your practice. So reading like 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, you can read it, then you can think about it for 24 hours or so, and then you can read a little bit more. And then think about that and reflect on that for a few hours or a few days and then read a little bit more. So most of these chapters you're going to be able to read in under an hour. I think there's only maybe one or two that are more than an hour. So if you're reading like 10, 15, 20 minutes a day over the course of a week, you'll be able to finish some of these chapters in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. But other ones, they might take you 30 minutes, 45 minutes to read. So over the course of the week, you just gradually integrate some reading. You build up your meditation practice with breathing mindfulness meditation. And now this week, we're moving into loving kindness meditation. And work on your moral conduct where you're practicing right intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And you work on purifying that. And now I'll just slowly walk you through the individual chapters of the book. So just to show you guys the book, so if you're either getting it online or some other place, you can see the cover. This cover, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden Book Series, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. So you can download it from buddhadailywisdom.com. You can go print it. You can order printed versions on Amazon. If you're here in Chiang Mai, I have them at the temple and you can get some there as well. 
And then this Wednesday, we're going to be in the loving kindness meditation class where I'm going to be teaching you over a four part series how to develop your loving kindness meditation because you'd like to start integrating that in to help you eliminate that ill will. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for the questions that you've been asking. Thank you all for your generosity. I know some of you guys have been sharing generosity with me, which has really helped me to be able to sustain life with basic necessities that I need. Also, it's helped me to be able to purchase some equipment at the temple to now be able to live stream that class that I teach over there each Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday morning, and then other classes that I'm teaching over there as well. So I'd like to just thank all of you guys that are practicing generosity with me and Think about this as your gamma is coming back to you, that as you're learning these teachings, as you're seeing more and more opportunities to learn and more classes and more ability for you to get personal guidance and other things like this, this is your gamma coming back to you due to practicing generosity. So thank you so much for all your support. Thank you for your questions and all your dedication to learning up to this point where we've now done this overview of the path to enlightenment. Starting next week, we're going to be going chapter by chapter each individual week, going all the way through to the end of the program, which will be a, a six months from now. So it's a total of a seven-month program. As you guys have questions, you're always welcome to ask those in class, to post them in the Facebook group, to send me a private message, or to schedule personal guidance. You can just go to our website and schedule personal guidance and I'll be able to meet with you in Zoom one-on-one and help you to apply the teachings to any particular struggle or challenge that you're having in life. Because these classes I teach at a certain level of detail and when you meet privately with me, we can go deeper down into it and applying it to your specific challenges or struggles or difficulties that you might be having. And that's where you can really see the real potency and the real power of the teachings of the Buddha. So have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you guys in a future class. Take care and be well. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.